Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Hey guys, ready or not, 2024 is here and we here at Breaking Points are already thinking of ways we can up our game for this critical election. We rely on our premium subs to expand coverage, upgrade the studio, add staff, give you guys the best independent coverage that is possible. If you like what we're all about, it means the absolute world to have your support. What are you waiting for? Become a premium subscriber today at breakingpoints.com. So one thing I've been tracking very closely, I actually did a monologue here before the release, was the government is mandated to release all of the records related to JFK's assassination. And president after president has been pushing off this deadline. Uh, was Once again, that deadline was upon Joe Biden, and he did do a limited release of documents. So very excited to be joined by uh, an expert journalist and researcher on exactly what is revealed by these documents and also what is revealed by which documents are continuing to be withheld. Uh, we're joined by Jefferson Worley. He's a Washington journalist and author. He's co-founder and editor of the JFK Facts Substack, which I'm a subscriber to and you should be as well. He's also vice president of the Mary Farrell Foundation. Great to have you. Welcome. Thanks for having me. A lot to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. So for people who are uninitiated, can you just give the backstory of where this release came from, what compelled action in the first place? So the assassination of President Kennedy 60 years ago has long been controversial, and Congress passed a law in 1992 in order to quell speculation and keep people fully informed that the government had to release all of its records related to the assassination and various investigations that were connected with it. In Congress, a lot, of, a lot was done. It was a good law. A lot of the material was released. But Congress said after 25 years, everything has to be released, except in the rarest of cases. That was the law. This is a law, by the way, that passed Congress unanimously. So the intent of Congress was very clear that after 25 years, and like you said, since then, since 2017, first President Trump and then President Biden have delayed enforcing the law to, you know, to its full extent. Um, and they've been giving a pass to various federal agencies, primarily the CIA, but also the FBI and other government agencies, which are still withholding portions of some files related to the assassination of President Kennedy. So last month, there was this big ballyhoo 
the Biden White House released a memo and the CIA did a big press offensive and tuned in their favorite reporters in Washington. And they said, look, we're, you know, we're releasing all this stuff. There's really nothing left here. It's very, it's all cut and dried and we've complied with the law. And, you know, when we went in to look at that, we at the Mary Farrell Foundation, which is JFK researchers, it was a very partial release. It was, there's still 4,000 CIA documents that contain redactions that are related to the assassination. So it, you know, it was kind of a shell game. And so now we're trying to figure out what's going to happen next. And what one striking thing that happened this time around was the press coverage, for once, was very skeptical. You know, I mean, even mainstream media organizations are now like wondering, like, the CIA must be hiding something if they're hiding all this stuff, you know. And no, 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 the CIA comes along and briefs their favorite reporters on background and says there's nothing to it. But, you know, that's not really very convincing anymore. So as we go into 2023, as we head to the 60th anniversary of the Kennedy assassination, the issue of, you know, will the CIA fully disclose is still a live one. Now they have till June 30th. So we'll see this spring whether there are going to be any more forthcoming or whether Biden can put his foot down and force them to fully disclose. That hasn't happened yet. And you and other researchers have identified certain documents that you're particularly interested in, which have not been released as of yet. What are some of the pieces that, in your view, are missing and could help fill in some of the important blanks here? Well, there's, there's sort of big picture things, and then there's very focused things. So let me, let me start with a big picture one. One of the documents that we wanted to see the most, um, uh, I think, uh, was a document that JFK's advisor, Arthur Schlesinger, wrote to him in June 1961. This is two years before the assassination. Um, it was uh, in the aftermath of the Bay of Pigs invasion, which was a total failure. That was the CIA's plan to overthrow Fidel Castro. It was very embarrassing to President Kennedy that it failed within the first hundred days of his presidency. Um, and he was mighty pissed off at the CIA at that point, and the feelings were mutual. Um, you know, the CIA didn't like Kennedy because he hadn't backed their plan the way they thought he would. So in this period of confrontation between the CIA and the White House, Schlesinger writes a memo to, to JFK about CIA reorganization, and that's the title of the memo. And they're thinking about, well, maybe we should reorganize the CIA. So a very interesting memo. Um, of which about a page and a half are still redacted by the CIA. And we were hoping that this would be like, we'd finally see what's under there. And, and first of all, like there's no names of agents in there. You know, are, this is two years before the assassination. It doesn't have anything to do with the assassination directly. So why not declassify it? And you know what they did, Crystal? They declassified one sentence out of the page and a half. And the rest of it remains blank. So what do we draw That's from this? You know, example. the CIA doesn't want to talk about their conflict with President Kennedy 60 years ago. And somehow that's related to the assassination. That's kind of a common sense conclusion that you would draw from this. Right. And before so, you go into the, the micro yeah. piece, just to draw right. this out for people, you know, one sure. of the primary hypotheses here is that the CIA was somehow implicated in the assassination of JFK. Um, that's certainly something that I think a lot of of, uh, of research and a lot of the holes in the story points to. And what people who say, no, 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 that's not the case, will say is, well, JFK did a lot of the things that the CIA wanted him to do, so they really weren't at odds. Ultimately, he had sort of gone all on board with, you know, the uh, Red Scare and uh, was 
kept a lot of the CIA heads in charge. So, you know, that's not really plausible because they didn't really have this conflict that other people see. And so that's why this memo is significant okay. ultimately, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, because that's that's one view. I would say I've written three books about the CIA in the 1960s and particularly about three powerful men in the CIA. You know, the CIA and the White House were very alienated in 1963. The CIA and the Joint Chiefs of Staff were very alienated in 1963. And that's not Morley's conclusion. That's the conclusion of the official history of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And it's also seen in dozens of books by CIA people. Kennedy's liberal policies, especially on Cuba, were very disturbing to people in the CIA. Yes, Kennedy went along with, with the CIA on other things. He went along in Vietnam. But you know, if you know the story of the CIA and especially Cuba operations, the sense of alienation after the Bay of Pigs was very deep on both sides. So that continued through 1963. And it raises the question of if the president was killed by his enemies, as a lot of people think, you know, who would have the capacity to make the crime look like something else, right? And it would be people like the CIA. Now, I don't have a CIA done it theory. I don't know who killed Kennedy. Um, that's what we're looking for. We're looking to try and, you know, resolve. And so one of the things that we do as researchers is I look at three categories of people. Uh, if you're looking, if you're talking about suspects in the assassination, and that's people, CIA people who were involved in assassination operations, other assassination operations, um, CIA people who implicated themselves in the crime at one point or another, and Howard Hunt and David Morales seem to do that at different times, um, and uh, um, people who knew about Lee Harvey Oswald before the assassination, okay? And so if you look at those people, and that's, what, that's where we're drilling down now, you know, first of all, one thing that people should know, and this is, there's a lot of debates and disputes about the assassination, but one thing I think everybody, all researchers would agree is, the CIA knew far, far more about Oswald than they ever told the Warren Commission or they ever told the American people. And, and that's what we're drilling down on now is, the CIA was very interested in Oswald, their denials notwithstanding. Um, why were they interested in what were they doing with him? You know, what did they want to do with him? And so what we believe, a lot of researchers, one very likely explanation is somebody was running an operation using Oswald. Now, was that an operation to kill the president? Don't know. Was it an operation that underestimated the threat that Oswald posed to the president? It, possibly. We don't know. But that's where the story's going. The CIA's interest in Oswald before the assassination. And uh, so talk to me then about the, the, the macro was the, the memo that laid out a potential restructuring of the CIA plan. What were the micro pieces that you were hoping would be in this release and were not? So we're interested in the CIA operations that touched on Oswald, that somehow he was involved with. And one of the most striking examples of that is happens three months before the assassination where Oswald has a series of encounters in New Orleans with a group called the Cuban Student Directory, which we now know was funded by the CIA. The CIA didn't disclose that to assassination investigators. And what this group did in that was they publicized Oswald's pro-Castro politics. And they made a big deal out of it. A totally obscure man. Nobody had ever heard of Lee Harvey Oswald, but they were paying close attention to him. And they were on the radio, they were on TV, they were in the newspaper. Oswald was a pro-Castro activist. Well, when Oswald was arrested, 
that same group went to the press and said Kennedy was killed by a communist. And so the whole first day coverage was very much shaped by the information from the Cuban Student Directorate, these people who'd had some contact with Oswald, some fights over Cuban politics in New Orleans. That's what we want to know about. And these records are known to exist. Um, they're known to concern CIA operations. This isn't a fishing expedition. It's a very precise request. Um, you know, make these records public. And they didn't make them public. And in fact, they seem to deny that these were even JFK records. So they're digging their feet in because they really, really don't want to talk about this story. But it is starting to see the light of day. Um, your latest Substack piece, let's go ahead and put this up on the screen, guys. It says, the CIA's new spin on Lee Harvey Oswald, the official story of the so-called lone gunman, recently changed. Why? Um, so their original position that basically, like, oh, we didn't know anything about this dude. He just kind of came out of nowhere, has become increasingly untenable. And so they've had to make some rhetorical shifts uh, without really fully acknowledging the way that they lied in the past. And you break some of those down for us in the Substack piece. Just lay it down for us. Yeah, so, I mean, look, they don't call it the Central Intelligence Agency for nothing. These people are smart, okay? And they're defending their interests in a smart way. You know, but their problem is, is they don't really have a ready cover story for the records that we're, we're requesting. So they're trying to dodge what's going on. So like you said, it used to be when the Warren Commission came out, the CIA said, you know, we didn't know anything about this guy. I mean, he came out of nowhere. We just we just didn't know, you know, with revelations of congressional investigation in the 1970s and declassification, which started in the 1990s we finally saw that that just wasn't true at all. They knew a lot about Oswald. They had opened a file on him and monitored his movements constantly for four years. And we're not talking about like some lowly clerk at the CIA who's paying attention to, you know, losers and lone nuts department. These were top people in the agency, in the counterintelligence staff run by James Angleton and in the director of operations run by Dick Helm. So, these were the people who had information about Oswald before the assassination. So they never said that. And in the 1990s, that became clear. And so now if, if they go to talk to reporters, they can't say, oh, we, we didn't know anything about this guy. So now they've backed up and now they're just saying, we never engaged with him. So they're not denying that they knew all about it. They're not denying that they monitored him. They're just saying they never engaged him. Well, that's possible. So, you know, let's check it. Let's see the files. And if there's nothing there, there's nothing there. And they can exculpate it. They can exonerate themselves. That didn't happen either. So, you know, on the face of it, that seems suspicious, maybe. I mean, you know, we didn't get a very good explanation, except for these talking points that they distributed to their favorite reporters. And in there, you know, they said that the, the records that we're seeking, the, the, the file of George Joannides, they denied that they had withheld that from investigators. And, and that's false. They did deny it from investigators. And, 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 and Judge Tonheim, the head of the Assassination Records Review Board, said as much in a letter to Biden last month. So, you know, the judge put it on the table. These are JFK records. The CIA needs to put them out, review them and release them. And they didn't do that. So it's a very clear case. And we now have a, another, you know, another deadline. Will they blow it again? You know, after you blow the deadline four times, you can probably count on blowing it five times, right? Yeah, in, fair in, enough. A Washington bureaucracy would, 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 you know, conclude that. So that's where we're at right now.
Well, one thing that you do, as you pointed out, have on your side that you may not have had in the past is a more skeptical media. And what do you attribute that to? I mean, I think primarily that, that um, you know, the government story is not very credible. I mean, you can't say we're not hiding anything, but let us keep 4,000 documents secret. Now, you know, the counter argument that they say and that they're, you know, that they're people in, the, in their public affairs office say is, you know, this, there's nothing related to the assassination in these records. Okay, but, you know, that's fine. The law says you have to release them all. So re- if you're right, release them. You know, their, their obstinance, their digging in tells you something. And it, it, that's all you can say. And we gotta wait and see if we can, if we can actually get the records. Yeah, you have an agency that has a proven track record of lying, insisting they never engaged with Lee Harvey Oswald, but the very documents that could prove them correct, they for some reason, for some reason don't want to show the public. Um, The last thing that I want to get for you is why should people still care about this story? Why should people still be interested in this? Well, I think that it shows, I mean, a couple of things. One, you know, the notion that President Kennedy was killed by his enemies is kind of commonsensical, and a lot of people believed it. So it's not, it's not crazy to think that that's what happened. Jackie Kennedy thought that's what happened. So, you know, we need to understand our history and what really happened. And, you know, we need to hold the government accountable. You know, and there's two ways to look at the JFK story. One is, you know, let's use that to tear down the government. And, you know, and, 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 and get rid of these people. But the other way to look at it is, you know, let's hold the government accountable and prove that the, that, that the system can work and that we can admit our bad mistakes. And, you know, if something untoward happened with President Kennedy, you know, the American people are mature and we've seen a lot. You know, we know that extra constitutional conspiracies are normal in American history from Watergate to January 6th. We see extra constitutional conspiracies. If something like that happened in 1963, I think people will say, yeah, you know, we need to know that. So that's where we're at. That's why people should care about it today, because it's not just, you know, it's not just a a question of something that happened long ago, but it's a test of government, of self-government today. That's why it matters today. I think think that's very well said. Um, Tell people where they can find you. And also, I know you have a, a really exciting podcast coming out today. So let people know about that as well. Yeah, so if you're interested in the JFK story, um, subscribe to JFK Facts, um, jfkfacts.substack.com. You'll get a daily dose of JFK news. Um, You can sign up for free or you can be a premium subscriber for the modest cost of $5 a month. So, and you will learn all about the JFK story. And, you know, frankly, we're ahead of the media now where we have the credibility now. And so major news organizations are at least listening our take on what's going on. So if you want that news first, go to jfkfacts.substack.com. You can get in touch with me, DM at uh, Jefferson Morley on Twitter, um, and uh, you can follow me there. Uh, I tweet about, you know, what's in the JFK news, um, uh, you know, on a pretty pretty regular basis. And one of the things that paying subscribers get um, with JFK Facts is access to the weekly podcast. And I have a terrific episode, which is going on tonight, with a man named Ernst Titovitz. And Ernst Titovitz was a friend of Lee Harvey Oswald um, in Russia. He's still alive. He's a biochemist. He was a 20-year-old medical student. Oswald was a 20-year-old ex-Marine. And Titovitz spoke English. And he got to know the man who has been accused of killing President Kennedy. And his view of the man of Oswald 
is quite interesting and quite different than anything you've probably ever heard before, certainly from mainstream news organizations. Um, a very interesting man. So if you want to hear that, um, tune in at uh, eight o'clock tonight, jfkfacts.substack.com. Um, and uh, I think you will learn something. I thought I knew a lot and I learned something. So. <laughs> Fantastic. That is a great season. <laughs> I will definitely check it out. Um, you guys all should as well. Jefferson Morley over at JFK Facts, uh, journalist, researcher, and really, really grateful for your time today. Thank you so much, sir. We're excited to be back now with none other than Matt Taibbi. You should check out taibbi.substack.com, TK News over there. Matt, welcome back to CounterPoints. Thanks for having me on. Of course, we're really excited. Uh, we talked earlier in the show about sort of the first dump of the two-part jump yesterday. There was so much information. We want to talk to you about the belly button. Um, and maybe we have a picture of the lovely illustration of the belly button. <laughs> Twitter and the FBI belly button. Uh, now, Matt, you had a thread on this on Twitter. You had a post on it up on TK, which was excellent. Can you start just by telling us, <laughs> while people are looking at the lovely graphic, um, what the hell the FBI belly button? is. It's actually really interesting. Uh, I know that picture is gross and kind of <laughs> off-putting, um, but it, it, in a way it kind of should be because uh, one of the things that we were focused on with these documents is trying to figure out the architecture of how information flowed to and from the government uh, with Twitter. And what this uh, thread is really about is how Twitter didn't really want to work with certain agencies for a variety of reasons. They had political disagreements. They thought the, the State Department, for instance, was too Trumpy. Um, and so they were putting up a front about uh, how many different agencies they wanted to give away their, their chief moderator's phone number to. And ultimately, they settled on a system where everything went through uh, the DHS and the FBI, and there's a passage where the FBI agent says, think of us as the belly button for the USG. Mm. So information is essentially, uh, and there's another passage where, where the, the agent says, the FBI will take care, uh, you know, we'll handle federal and the USIC, and DHS will know what's going on in all the states. So that's how they did did up the, the the information. The moderation request came in on the federal and international side through FBI and domestically through the Homeland Security. And you also talked about this this one uh, back and forth around people who were retweeting or, or zero hedge or zero hedge articles or something. Zero hedge had been banned, but then people are still sharing some of the information, and they they, they said it led to quote another flurry of disinformation narratives around the time Zero Hedge had been speculating on the origins of COVID, whether, whether or not it was a, a lab leak or natural origin. So what, 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 what's going on with, like, are, are, they, are they zeroing in on Zero Hedge at, at this point and then trying to make sure that there's nothing emanating remotely from them? And what, el what else did you find around this area? So I, I think th this came from a report by the Global Engagement Center, which is like the fledgling intel arm of the State Department that nobody's ever heard of. Uh, it was founded in the Obama years under Hillary Clinton. I think they wanted to make basically like the State Department version of the NSA. 
Um, and so it's kind of the weak sister of the intelligence community. And they issued a report in February of 2020 that basically identified a whole bunch of actors as potential cyber threats. And one of their criteria was um, sort of arguing that COVID might have come from a lab or retweeting news about zero hedge being banned from Twitter. And what this really offers you a window into is, is how government agencies decide that this or that account is suspicious. Like they have all these crazy criteria. Everybody thinks it's super sophisticated. It's not, it's really stupid. Like in another area uh, of, the, of, of these reports, they're talking about um, anybody who retweets two or more Chinese diplomats um, is now suspect uh, for being uh, for spreading Chinese disinformation, and that included like the Canadian military, like a CNN account. Um, so this just gives you a window into how they're how they're making those decisions. I think it also gives us a, a window into how, and this was another thing your your earlier thread yesterday reported on how reporters. Uh, promulgate and and fuel so much of this cycle. Your earlier thread, something like reporters now know this model works. There, that was an email from a Twitter reporter or a, t a Twitter staffer. What did you find as it relates to this question in terms of reporters fueling and working with the government agencies, basically in service of, of censorship? Yeah, so I find this part fascinating. Maybe only other reporters find it interesting, <laughs> but um, you know, you might remember back in the WMD episode, there was this famous thing uh, involving Dick Cheney and this thing called stovepiping, where Cheney would reach into uh, one of the intelligence agencies and grab raw intel that hadn't been vetted, would feed it to a news agency or a newspaper like the New York Times, and then would go on uh, a show like Meet the Press and say, hey, did you hear about that New York Times article? Uh, and exactly the same process goes on here. Basically, you have you know either a government department like the Senate Intel Committee or some private researcher that's connected to the government that goes through a reporter and says, here are a bunch of suspect accounts we think are Russia linked. And then they will go to, to Twitter and say, we think these are Russia linked. Will you take action on them? Do you have any comment? And Facebook, not wanting to take the political hit, might suspend a few accounts, and then instantly they have a headline like, you know, Facebook uh, uncovers with our help, you know, Russian influence. And that's what the Twitter staffer was talking about, that this is a model that works. As soon as you get somebody to sign off on the idea that this or that account is Russia linked, you already have, you have an automatic news story. And they did that over and over again. And what's really interesting, I thought, in these documents is you see the Twitter staffer saying, this is going to happen to us over and over again. <laughs> and, and it did. I also wanted to ask you about this Yol Roth email that's number 17 in your thread, which I think actually kind of exposes the, the divide in such a profound way. And it's, it's, it's Roth referring to the DHS and FBI as, as apolitical. And he puts, <laughs> he puts generally in parentheses to acknowledge that, okay, there's maybe there's a tiny bit of politics going on with DHS and FBI. But I, it's an internal email. I feel like when he's writing this, I think he, he means it. And, and the problem with this GEC, to, and you can talk a little bit about what GEC is, he, to them that was political. So what do, you, what do you draw from the fact that, and let's assume that he means it. 
that when he thinks of the FBI and DHS that he sees them as apolitical. What does that tell you about how Twitter was you know, relating to those, those organizations, those government agencies? Well, it, clearly, I think they, they, moved, they brought themselves into a place psychologically where they were able to comply with really this unbelievably incessant stream of demands from agencies like the FBI and the DHS to um, eliminate certain accounts. They justified that on the grounds that all of these things were legitimate threats, they were legitimately dangerous. We legitimately had to worry about um, what he called major risks, which included, I guess, Donald Trump getting reelected. Uh, so when they were presented with an agency that was politically not in the same place as they were, and it happened twice that year, actually, I didn't mention this, but also that summer um, they refused to go along with a Pentagon program that involved uh, the army making fake accounts uh, to cover up for drone attacks. Uh, they uh, basically they, they decided that you know a more Trump-leaning government agency was quote political, and the FBI, DHS, uh, NSA, CIA, all those other agencies were not political. Uh, so that's how they justified dealing with all those those moderation requests, but. I think it's pretty transparent what they were doing, and I think people will see it uh, that way too. I follow up on that real yeah, quick. Go for it. Uh, how does that relate to what you found? How does that re relate to Lee Fong's story? Oh, did yeah. they, did, once Trump was in, were, um, or yeah, can you like what's the connection between Lee, Lee Fong was on our show uh, a couple weeks ago talking about what he had found uh, in which Twitter was kind of whitelisting a bunch of Pentagon bots and Pentagon accounts that were that were doing uh, you know, propaganda ar around the globe and around around drone strikes. Did they did they at some point then you found push back against some they of this? Were they going too they far? Did. Yeah. And, and Lee even wrote about that. It, the, the pushback uh, came in June of 2020. Uh, oh, it started okay, okay. with Facebook, ac actually. Uh, fa Facebook was the first company to say no. And then Twitter kind of followed their lead, but uh, essentially the the Pentagon and you know, we can put Pentagon in parentheses because this really we're talking about the NSA in some cases. Um, they uh, they had been creating local foreign language accounts so that if, for instance, you did a drone strike in a foreign country where they speak Arabic. And there were lots of local news reports saying, oh, they blew up a hospital and all these kids died. Suddenly you would see a flurry of fake accounts that would say, oh, no, actually, it wasn't that bad. There were no there were no serious casualties. And guess who that was? That was us doing that. Right. <laughs> so those were what we call influence uh, information operations. And they have been doing they've been going along with that for years. But the Pentagon had not had a good relationship with Twitter dating back to 2017. I was told this explicitly by uh, somebody in the defense community uh, that they had been basically ghosted by Twitter dating back to like the middle of 2017. Finally in 2020, the companies banded together and decided not to do this anymore. And that story didn't come out until 2022. You might remember it from earlier uh, last fall when it came out in the Washington Post that they, they had un uncovered a U.S. information operation. It was actually a Pentagon operation. 
It's really interesting. It, um, w- one thing from all of these, all of the reporting that's happened during the Twitter file is to see how much business is conducted over email and Slack. I mean, one thing that's always plagued journalists, like to time, like forever, basically, is that nobody puts things in writing. You know, this is all phone calls or in writing. They say we need to move this to a phone call, uh, but so much of this was happening in writing um, and was etched in so-called like digital stone, maybe. Uh, but Matt, is that have you seen any effort? I'm sure there. Are a couple emails where it's like, oh, let's chat over the phone, or I think I've actually even seen any of that. But have you seen any effort um, as you're going through these thousands, tens of thousands of emails to, to move conversations to phone? Not that I'm in favor of less transparency, <laughs> but did they really just think that this was kind of in a vault and was not a liability for them to be talking like this? They, they clearly thought that they they were extremely cavalier in what they were doing. There, there are moments where they say maybe this is more of a phone conversation. They also, um, and this is one of the things that came out in the second thread yesterday, the quote unquote industry call, which is uh, involved Twitter, Facebook, some other comp- and a whole bunch of other companies, um, and then the DHS, FBI, Director of National Intelligence, and then there were a bunch of other agencies that were sort of auditing, they were in listen mode only. Um, All that was going on in Signal, which uh, is an interesting question because some lawyers have raised to me the the issue of, um, you know, can you really send things um, in encrypted fashion or or can you send documents that are timed to disappear, which is what happens through the FBI's teleporter program. Uh, If you're a government agency, you're supposed to be recording everything. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's interesting. Like they had, I would say, on the whole, really terrible OPSEC on all this stuff. But <laughs> but in some cases, uh, you know, they're using methods that I'm not sure were illegal if they're government agency um, uh, endeavors. So that it's both it's interesting on both fronts. Yeah, that happened here in D.C. Government officials were communicating over mm-hmm. signal and they had to stop that because yeah. it's not appropriate. Yeah. So right. You, well, that raises yeah. a lot of questions. I'm sorry to interrupt, but yeah. you had you had thousands and thousands of moderation requests coming in via Signal and Teleporter, mm-hmm. and you know I'm not sure how much of that is ever going to be retrieved. And and you know, is is that okay? I'm not sure. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And so you and the other other reporters working on the Twitter files have been accused of quote unquote cherry picking. Uh, and, and I saw that you responded to that in one of your recent recent newsletters. Can you can you elaborate on 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 your kind of uh, response to to that particular line of attack? First of all, I don't even know what that means. Like, <laughs> as opposed to what you know, the 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 absolutely perfect, even representative sample of humanity that you see on other news channels. Like, <laughs> like what what are they talking about? Uh, and, and if you see an email in a sea of emails where it says, hey, um, we're the FBI, all the reports that come in from the U.S. intelligence community uh, and from us will go through our channels and, and the Homeland Security is going to handle all the states. You're not going to pick that cherry like, I, you know, as a reporter, I don't I don't really understand what they're arguing here. Yes, of course, we're taking the interest, interesting stuff. Um, but if you're if you want to argue that there's some other email somewhere that says, oh, we're not doing this, um, I, I would feel ethically obligated to put that in there. I haven't seen that. 
so uh, that's why I'm feeling confident in publishing this stuff. But there, there isn't really like a contra argument that, that, that is not appearing in these emails. One thing that people have said, uh, because I reported this initially, there were requests that came from the Trump administration um, and were honored. I was told that pretty solidly by former executives and I felt obligated to report it, but I haven't seen it in the email record. So that, that's why people aren't seeing it. It's just that I don't have it in writing. Hmm. That is really interesting. And I really recommend folks follow your subsec to TK News because it's been helpful in sort of fleshing this out even more. Um, just yeah. great reads over there and hope you're able yeah. to get some sleep, Matt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you both. So we have some very interesting and new information. I've always thought that this, the Virgin Islands could have been one of the areas where their prosecutors and their team very much wanted to try and get to the bottom of this. And a new filing in the U.S. Attorney's Office is devastating for one of the major financial institutions in the country. Let's put this up there on the screen. Epstein's sex trafficking was aided by J.P. Morgan. This is according to a new lawsuit from the U.S. Virgin Islands attorney general's office that was filed in the Southern District of Manhattan on Tuesday. Essentially, what they are alleging is that J.P. Morgan failed to report Epstein's suspicious activities and actually provided the financier with services reserved for high wealth clients even after a 2008 conviction for soliciting a minor for prostitution in Palm Beach, Florida. They specifically say that they have information which has revealed that J.P. Morgan knowingly, negligently, and unlawfully provided and pulled the levers through which recruiters and victims were paid and was indispensable to the operation and concealment of the Epstein trafficking enterprise. So why does all of this matter? We should go back and remember a New York Financial Services Department fine of J.P. Morgan, of Deutsche Bank, and of other financial institutions, which showed specifically that the banks were involved in a collusion process to go after Epstein's business and specifically facilitated his own transactions from the United States to Eastern Europe, presumably, and in many cases, towards women who are being used for sex trafficking purposes. Why does that matter? Because Epstein himself and his network and organization were pulling all sorts of financial chicanery that if you or I tried to pull a crystal, we would be automatically reported to the FBI. And in fact, one of those, my personal favorite example from the Financial Services Department complaint was when they would say, how much cash can we withdraw without triggering the feds? Uh, by the way, just asking that question, you're supposed to call the feds. And they engage in regular behavior where they would try and withdraw as much cash as possible without triggering an automatic regulatory informing to federal authorities. This is just the tip of the iceberg. What the yeah. U.S. Virgin Islands is doing here is revealing it at the major meta financial institutional level of which, remember, we have no transparency outside of that financial services fine that happened for Deutsche Bank in uh, I think it was in 2021. We have no more clarity because the Ghislaine Maxwell trial focused on crimes. And I'm not saying these weren't valid, but on things that happened in so far limited in scope and so long time ago, the actual architect of all of the power networks, the people like Leon Black, the billionaires, the Wall Street, the financial institutions, all of it remains outside of public record. So this is a very important case that's happening here. 
Yeah, I mean, the Ghislaine Maxwell trial, I think it's pretty clear, was uh, engineered to protect as many powerful people as possible while still putting her in prison because the public was just not going to accept her ultimately going through, going free. So when you look at this uh, pattern with these financial institutions, keep in mind, like, maybe before he was a convicted sex offender, maybe you could sort of turn a blind eye and make up some innocent reason for these strange transactions. But they continued to do business with him and seek out business with him after he's a convicted sex offender. And these are sophisticated institutions. You don't think that they don't know what suspicious financial transactions look like, what, you know, they are supposed to report under the law in terms of suspicious suspicious financial transactions. So it really is, you know, disgusting. All they cared about ultimately was the money. And then the the next twist in this story is this attorney general for the Virgin Islands, who's been seems to be pretty dogged in her pursuit of accountability and exposing the enablers of the Jeffrey Epstein um, sex crimes ring. She was fired from her job for filing this lawsuit against J.P. Morgan Chase. Go ahead and put this piece up on the screen here. Um, she was fired days after uh, suing J.P. Morgan Chase over the Jeffrey Epstein ties. And it says in the article, I mean, they out and out acknowledged that this was the reason for her dismissal. They didn't even try to make up like, oh, no, it had something to do with her other conduct and it really had nothing to do with Epstein. No, they were like, no, this caught us off guard. And so we relieved her of her duties. So even from the grave, this man is still being protected. But more to the point, all of the powerful people who were caught up in this or who enabled this and chose to look the other way or were active participants, they continue to be protected at the highest levels. Yes. I want to underscore again that Denise George, the attorney general here who was fired, has been really courageous um, on this investigation for years now. Let's go ahead and put this up there on the screen. It's a news item from a couple of years ago, but it shows you that in an initial lawsuit that she actually filed, they allege that Epstein was trafficking girls as young as 12 years old to the U.S. Virgin Islands on the property and the island that he privately owned. This was part of a $100 million settlement with the Epstein estate that the Virgin Islands actually just came to with the Epstein estate to claw back, quote, more than $80 million in economic development tax benefits that Epstein and co-defendants had fraudulently obtained from U.S. Virgin Islands and other authorities to actually use to then fund his sex trafficking enterprise. I also want to read a quote from the lawsuit that she filed before she was fired. These decisions were advocated and approved at the senior levels of J.P. Morgan, who facilitated and concealed wire and cash transactions that raised suspicious of and were in fact part of a criminal enterprise whose currency was a sexual servitude of dozens of women and girls in and beyond the U.S. Virgin Islands. This lawsuit is, again, the tip of the iceberg. And if it actually was allowed to proceed, we would have gotten financial statements, subpoenas, possibly a senior JP Morgan executives, account managers, some of the other sophisticated financial chicanery that Epstein and all of his coterie were involved in. I mean, I I'm still have so many questions. If we'll all remember Leon Black, who was the head of the Apollo group, he was one of the richest men in the United States. 
um, one of the most powerful people on Wall Street. And he paid him some $100 million for, quote, tax advice. And the way that he paid him that $100 million was through the shell corporation that owned his private jet to Jeffrey. I mean, this and then Bill Gates. I mean, Bill Gates' own divorce, as Melinda Gates has now come out and said, was because she was understanding the level of his involvement with Jeffrey Epstein, not just some one chance meeting. We're talking about behind closed doors, even allegedly in some cases complaining about his marriage. And, um, you know, he's known to have been involved in affairs also while he was married. So some of the world's richest and most powerful men are ensnared in this and yeah. none of it yet has come to light. And he's been dead, I'll just say dead, we'll uh, say for the circumstances for later, for several years now. I mean, it's just completely crazy. This was one of the only chances that we really had, and now she's been fired. Um, and, you know, I'll let you surmise about why exactly that would happen. In 2022, we covered how inflation caused a lot of pain for a lot of people, but there was one group of people who, not too sad about the fact that they also... Uh, had a lot of financial pain. Let's go ahead and put this up on the screen. Uh, the world's billionaires lost $1.4 trillion in 2022. Leave this up on the screen. Let me read a few of the details here. Um, the headline from Bloomberg says how Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, and the world's 500 richest billionaires lost $1.4 trillion in a year. Ultra wealthy tech founders led a wipeout in fortunes that spanned the globe, though secretive families and pro sports owners emerged relatively unscathed. Um, I want to read just a little bit of this article here. He says, they say in Bloomberg, it's not just the money that was lost, though it was staggering, almost $1.4 wiped from those fortunes. Plenty of the pain, it turns out, was self-inflicted. The alleged fraud by one-time crypto wonderkin Sam Bankman-Fried, the devastating war waged by Russia on Ukraine that spurred crippling sanctions on its business titans, and of course, the antics of Elon Musk, the new owner of Twitter, who's worth $138 billion less than he was just a year ago, combined with the backdrop of widespread inflation and aggressive central bank tightening. The year was a dramatic come down for a group of billionaires whose fortunes fell to unfathomable heights in the COVID era of easy money. In most cases, the bigger the rise, the more dramatic the fall. Musk, Bezos, uh, CZ, and Mark Zuckerberg alone saw some $392 billion erased from their cumulative net worth. And Sagar, this is kind of the flip side of the Fed uh, tightening and hiking interest rates uh, dynamic, because it is true that in the era of zero interest rates, you've had this uh, tremendous uh, financialization of the economy. You've had money so cheap and easy that you had a lot of dramatic fortunes wildly inflated. And so that part, it's not bad that you have a coming down to earth of parts of the economy. It's just the pain of working class people and the fact that this has been sort of explicitly engineered to crush wages and spike unemployment. That's the part of the Fed policy that has been very objectionable. That's the hard part, right? Which is that there really is no way to do both when you're only using the Federal Reserve. I also do want to underscore, I think it is interesting that China also was a huge part of this story. The Chinese economic lockdowns that happened have been devastating for the Chinese billionaire class. So this isn't just America. This is worldwide. The Russian oligarchs, of course, got nuked by US and Western sanctions. But the Chinese had a self-inflicted financial bomb that they set off on their economy with the COVID zero. 
on top of you have the central bank tightening. So it's global. This is a complete global meltdown, really, of what's happening. And look, I mean, all these people will sleep just fine at night. At a certain point, you know, is there any real difference in lifestyle between 350 billion and 100 billion? So I'm not going to get too upset for Jeff Bezos, for Elon Musk. I do think it more represents, though, that there are millions of people who work for these individuals who are now suffering as a result. And it is more of a reflection on the aggregate of the pain that so many people have suffered. And, you know, look, I can't be the only one two years later where, you know, inflation may not be in the headlines anymore, but it's not like grocery prices have fallen. They've mm -hmm. basically just stayed the same. Uh, you actually hear where I am in Mexico. I was looking at gas gas price here. It's like a buck forty a liter. I mean, that's a lot of money. Um, and when you consider what GDP per capita is, I'm like, wow. You know, people. I guess they call it petrol, but petrol is really gouging. You know, working people worldwide. So we should consider um, just how much of the pain which is reflected in the top line figure of their net worth is also dispersed on everybody else. So it's a tough one. It's one of those where uh, given the uh, the playbook that central policymakers use at the banking level, this is really the only way to try and engineer it when really there should be a way to make sure that they don't do as well and then others actually get to do even better. Yeah, well, it's just like we've been saying for quite a while. I mean, the Fed policy of zero interest rates or effectively negative interest rates for years and years, that created a lot of tremendous and basically fake wealth right. um, for the very, very tippy top. Meanwhile, it's not like working class people benefited from that era. But when you pop the balloon and you send the thing crashing back down, yeah, you're going to claw back some of those insane fortunes that were claimed by that fake easy money. But you're also going to hurt on the way down a lot of working class people. And that's, you know, that's exactly the story that we see playing out right now. So you have the accumulation of Fed sins over a number of years, which basically, you know, backstop the, the fortunes of the richest among us. Um, and then you also have a total government failure to be able to pass economic policy independent of the Fed and use a toolkit that would be better tailored and more suitable for these strange economic circumstances that we ultimately find us in. And that's sort, sort of the story of the economy right now. But listen, I think it is in and of itself a fundamental good for the economy to have that uh, some of that easy money that was floating zombie companies and creating fake fortunes and all of this stuff. I think it's good to have that bubble ultimately pierced. It just is incredibly painful um, that, you know, the policy that's been pursued is one that is going to hurt working class people so much more than, you know, Elon Musk is not going to hurt because he lost $200 billion or whatever he ultimately lost. He's going to be just fine, even so. So it's a, it's a complicated landscape. I guess that's what I'll say. Some really interesting data put out by the Financial Times about the political ideology of millennials. Let's go and put this up on the screen. So historically, uh, demographic groups have gotten more conservative as they have aged, but millennials are, they say, shattering that oldest rule in politics. And you can see on the uh, right side of the screen, these charts that track the political ideology of boomers, silent generation, and Gen X, they all follow that traditional pattern of becoming more conservative as they get older. Millennials, though, are 
not only are they not uh, following that pattern, they seem to be going in the opposite direction. This is data from both the U.S. and the U.K., um, so it's pretty fascinating. Obviously, we'll have huge implications for politics as, um, you know, silent generation passes on, as boomers continue to age and millennials continue to come into power. Uh, there's some indications Gen Z may follow in millennials' footsteps with their political ideology as well. So huge ramifications in terms of political uh, realignments and political power. And Sagar, you know, this is just sort of spitballing, but I have to think coming of age at a time of global financial total collapse where you have, you know, clear malfeasance on the top of top financial institutions. You have no one going to jail for it. You have, you know, your entire career prospects impacted, your whole life trajectory impacted by this series of events. It seems to me like that might shape your worldview for life. Oh, I think it's actually easy. Um, it just tracks with wealth. Why do you think boomers became more conservative as they got older? Because they had more money. They got more and money. They, got, yeah. Yeah. they had more money. And they're like, oh, um, actually, I want to pay less taxes. Yeah, mortgage interest deductions and all of that sounds good. Why do you care about that if you don't have any of it? Actually, what you want is really what your parents had. So I don't think it's all that complicated. And in fact, I mean, it just shows me that the definitions of conservative, liberal, and all that, these things don't even really mean anything. What we are going to see is a great reordering in our lifetime. Uh, what the Republican Party looks like in 25, 30 years, I think it's just going to have to be completely different if it's going to survive, very akin to what happened um, in the 1940s or in the 1930s and 40s under Franklin D. Roosevelt when they Basically, they had to abandon so much of what uh, they stood for during the pre-Great Depression era. And you had Eisenhower come in and basically declare peace on the New Deal and usher in a completely new party. I think that's very likely to happen. I think on the Democratic side, uh, much of the corporate you know, kind of alliance and all that that stood for under the Bill Clinton era has really been thrown out, especially in the UK, where they've basically thrown that out almost completely with the liberals. And in the Democratic Party for the US, it's still going to take some time. One of the things that I am taking some heart in with this Kevin McCarthy saga is that the parties are weaker now, and that's a really good thing. It's over the last 100 years, there has been no ability to cause chaos and revolt to try and take off the tops of these parties. And something I've come around to is that no matter who gets this speakership, if Kevin McCarthy doesn't get it, that's actually good for American democracy because they should not have locks on the speakership votes. They should not have locks to be able to have top-down controls. This is something that really evolved more in the Gilded Age and onward. And instead, we need to see a return to some like raucous chaos and the ability to inject some new blood into the system. I think that's actually when it's working at its best, as opposed to the way it has been now for the last like 40 or 50 years, and especially the last 100 years at the House level. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, when things are stayed and ossified and controlled top down, it becomes very limited because when it's top down control, you know exactly ultimately who they are going to serve. But yeah, it is fascinating to me. I think you're right on the money. Like if you want young people to have more conservative politics, maybe cut them in on the deal. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> cut them in on the deal. <laughs> Create some wealth. And then maybe they'll have, <laughs> you know, a stake in the status quo. Right now they have no stake in the status quo. They're like, fuck the status quo. This is not working for me whatsoever. And that's reflected ultimately in the data. So you see, you know, we covered the Charlie Munger and Bernie Marcus and whatever, all these old guys like lamenting these young people, not being grateful for what they have, et cetera. But when you look at the numbers, millennials and Gen Z uh, following in their footsteps, 
they're achieving every major life milestone later than previous generations. And so, yeah, of course, that's going to impact your politics. Of course, that's going to impact your sense of justice, of how the society should ultimately be ordered. And so no one should be surprised to see that it is, in fact, having that impact on their political ideology. Yeah, I mean, Charlie Munger really should know better. You know, I I think I was telling you, I read that biography of Warren Buffett called Snowball, where Munger, yeah, of course, is a too. central par- character. Well, what's the lesson with Charlie Munger? Him and Warren Buffett got extraordinarily, I'm not saying they didn't work hard, but they also happened to invest during one of the greatest booms in modern American history during the 1960s. Were they responsible for that or was broader at macro conditions, the world's superpower, Cold War, all of that? See, it just shows you that major economic conditions shape the options that are even available to people. So if you came of you know came of age in the 70s as opposed to the 60s, it's a totally different world. And with millennials, we basically had the 70s except they just never ended. <laughs> it's like it's, <laughs> there's no 80s uh, that have come to save us. And so it's not a surprise when you have malaise and uh you know really just really or lack of questioning and faith in institutions which you know personally I don't think you should have faith in those institutions. So I think it's a good thing that people are rejecting the status quo. It creates possibility. What happens with that possibility? Totally uncertain. Could be better, could be worse. Who knows? But it at least creates possibility. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. 